This is a recording of a live panel session that took place during the Online Learning Consortium's Accelerate Conference in Orlando on November 17, 2022. We hope you enjoy it as much as we did. Thanks for joining us for Tea for Teaching, an informal discussion of innovative and effective practices in teaching and learning. This podcast series is hosted by John Kane, an economist, and Rebecca Mushter, a graphic designer, and features guests doing important research and advocacy work to make higher education more inclusive and supportive of all learners. Welcome to Advancing Inclusivity While Mitigating Burnout. I'm John Kane, an economist and the director of the Center for Excellence in Learning and Teaching at the State University of New York at Oswego. I'm Rebecca Muscher, a designer and an associate dean of graduate studies at SUNY Oswego. We're the hosts of the Tea for Teaching podcast and the moderators for today's session. We'd like to let everyone know that we're recording this session in order to release it in an upcoming episode for Tea for Teaching. And today's session will include 30 minutes of moderated discussion, followed by 10 minutes of questions from all of you. And I'll turn it over to John to introduce our panel. Our panelists are Michelle Miller. Michelle is a professor of psychological sciences and a president's distinguished teaching fellow at Northern Arizona University. Michelle is the author of Minds Online, Teaching Effectively with Technology, and also more recently, Remembering and Forgetting in the Age of Technology, Teaching and Learning in the Science of Memory, which was recently released by West Virginia University Press. We also have Liz Norell. Liz is a political scientist and an associate professor at Chattanooga State Community College. She is also an experienced registered yoga teacher with over 500 hours of training completed. She is currently working on a book on why presence matters in high-quality learner-centered, equitable learning spaces. We also have Kelvin Thompson. Kelvin is the executive director of the University of Central Florida's Center for Distributed Learning and graduate faculty scholar at UCF's College of Education and Human Performance. He developed the Open Courseware Blend Kit course that many of us have taken and co-hosts TopCast, the Teaching Online podcast. This wouldn't be a complete episode of Tea for Teaching if we didn't ask about tea. So, Kelvin, our coffee drinker, are you drinking tea today? I am drinking tea today, Rebecca. This is a mint tea from Tazo. I have to admit, I went looking for my favorite conference tea, which is that orange Tazo tea that I looked everywhere and they didn't have any. Ah, little bummer. <laughs> Michelle? Well, true to form, I'm drinking coffee and I'm going to admit that I also mixed it with Swiss Miss hot chocolate. <laughs> 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 a very guilty pleasure on many levels. I don't drink anything hot. So I'm drinking Diet Coke. Thank you. As many guests before you have as well. Yes. <laughs> John? And I am drinking an English breakfast tea today. And I have some very strong awake tea so that we're really awake for this episode. The pandemic spurred a rapid transition of instructional methods and an increased focus on inclusive teaching. And we wanted to talk a bit about that in today's session. We'd like to ask the panelists, what were some of the improvements in inclusivity and building a sense of belonging that you've observed during our pandemic, with particular emphasis on remote and asynchronous courses? And Liz is going to start. What I have found, particularly in asynchronous online courses, is that I have noticed this has much broadened the ability of neurodivergent 
students and students who have some kind of disability, especially an invisible disability. And the way that it's done that is by really forcing us to accept multiple kinds of student engagement. So what I noticed in March of 2020 is that students who had been almost invisible in my face-to-face class, when we came back to Zoom after spring break, I didn't see their faces, but I heard their voices, if not vocally, then in the chat. And I have so thoroughly appreciated that. I also learned from my students that you can change the way you show up in Zoom by putting one of those little lens things over your camera and changing your virtual background. So oftentimes they would come into a Zoom room and this would be in a synchronous class and they would have a different cartoon character of the day. And this was a wonderful way to get to know more about them and their personalities. What I've also found is that when we are meeting synchronously, recording the classes is really helpful for a lot of learners. And so since I've gone back to -to face-to-face teaching, I always open a Zoom room and record it. And sometimes students will join by Zoom because they can't come to campus that day. My partner who teaches math has also started doing this because they found that it's really helpful for the students to be able to review what they did in class when they're trying to apply it in their homework or preparing for an exam. The last thing I want to mention is that teach political science, we always do a unit on civil liberties. And one of the things that I did in person was bring in a prop box and have them do skits where they acted out the precipitating events to major Supreme Court civil liberties cases. And I thought, there's no way we can do this over Zoom, right? Yes. And it's just getting really creative with Zoom backgrounds, with props that they have in their houses. It makes it so much more campy that it's much more fun. Because in person, they were always like, ooh, I'm nervous. In Zoom, it's going to be a train wreck, okay? We're just going to embrace that. And that really creates a really fun dynamic in the classroom. I would agree with the broad brushstrokes of what Liz said. I would like to broaden it further, though, and say that throughout the last couple of years, what I've seen in a way that I've never seen before is an emphasis on empathy and what we might call a human first orientation. I was really heartened to see that in a lot of ways in the early days of the lockdown era of remote instruction. And I still see ripples of it now. Two things that come to mind from the early days that are worth a review, if you haven't looked at them in a while. One that got kind of viral, the so-called adjusted syllabus of Brandon Bain from UNC, where he got really kind of real and transparent with students and released it out all over for adaptation. And then Nick Susanas from San Francisco State University more recently had what he called uh, Notes on Now as a syllabus section that just kind of in a more encapsulated way He sort of said that he wants to keep anchoring down to that human first element and just keep that a present part of every course's syllabus. Thank you both Liz and Calvin for giving us some insights into what we've already been experiencing and reminding us about some of the strong improvements that we've had. Many campuses are moving back to on-site instruction while also considering how much of their portfolio should be including online options. And while each campus continues to adapt and adjust, how can we maintain the momentum around inclusive practices and avoid slipping back into our old habits? Michelle, will you start us off? And I love the framing here as momentum, because I think that many campuses have generated a lot of great energy around the why. 
of inclusion, the why of equity, the why of justice, and why this is so important. The trick is going to be to follow that energy on with more on the what and the how. How do we put that in practice? And I'm really struggling when I think about it because our students, they need practice when there's a new skill, a new way of responding. They need practice in lots of new contexts. And I talk a lot about transfer and we may remember a skill or develop a skill in one context and we just don't remember to activate it and carry it through in the new context. So we're going to need that. We're going to need to have certain techniques and teaching moves that do become second nature to us and be able to recognize, hey, this is one of those opportunities to put those into practice. So I was just in a session this morning by a group from the University of Wisconsin, and they talked about, for example, the need to provide lots of concrete examples to faculty, like what does this look like, maybe even in your discipline. So for example, increased course structure, we know this is proven to be an inclusive teaching practice. So I need to say, oh yeah, this is the place to do this. The frequent low stakes assessments, we know that that reduces disparities in opportunity and disparities in achievement across many student groups. And so offering those concrete paths, making sure we know how to set them up, and then showing faculty that we see it when they're making the effort and rewarding that. We don't always need that little extrinsic reward, but institutions have to really keep that up if they're going to see that this carries through. Because that's going to be the difference between institutions that really have that momentum moving forward and the ones that fall behind. I agree. <laughs> what she said. I come at this from a little bit of a different perspective because I am in the classroom or at least in a virtual classroom. But I think the word that comes to mind for me when I think about momentum is intentionality. And I think if we can remember to teach through our values especially those values that became so crystallized during COVID, that's a really good first step. And I'm fond of saying that what's good for students is good for us. So I want us to think about the ways that we prioritized care, humanity, grace with our students, and also make sure we're doing that for one another and for ourselves. And I mentioned this before, but COVID really revealed a lot of inequities that had been there for a long time. And now that we know that they're there, we have to be very intentional about ensuring that they don't just kind of go back to being invisible again now that we're not all on Zoom together. So those are the things that I'm thinking about. It's really leaning into our values, not forgetting what we learned, being intentional and doing for ourselves what we have seen we need to do for our students. A great reminder to think about not just the students, but the whole community, faculty, mm -hmm. staff, etc. During the early stages of the pandemic, we saw a lot of experimentation and we saw the rapid growth of remote synchronous instruction and high flex instruction. And one of the things I think many of us are wondering is what roles they will play as we move forward into the future. Kelvin? Well, my crystal ball never was working. Um, <laughs> it's not even broken. But Here's kind of what I think is happening and what may continue to happen. I think synchronous online options will continue to be a factor in our digital teaching learning in a way that it was not before the pandemic. And it is certainly possible that what I refer to as true high flex may still have a place as well. It's just, gosh, it's hard to pull real, true, high flex off, right? It's such a design intensive 
approach. What I contrastingly refer to as pseudo high flex, dual mode, simulcasting, webcasting of classroom experience, that has challenges. It has a place, perhaps, in individual instructor preference. But I'm going to tell you firsthand from faculty colleagues I talk to, as well as data I've seen, it's exhausting. And it's challenging for students. The what is sometimes touted as student flexibility ends up just becoming sort of a lowering of expectations and come and go as you wish. And the intentionality and momentum seems to dissipate. I'm a big fan of intentional design and modalities of choice and so forth that way instead. So I think synchronous is around, and I think our mutated modalities are around, and true high flex has a place, but I'd love to see a diminishing of pseudo high flex. This is sparking so many of my own thoughts that I'm really feeling in a way validated here. And I'll echo a lot of this as well. I think that in true high flex where I am fully engaging the folks who are all spread out, I'm fully engaging whoever's in my classroom and we're achieving all of our objectives. That really is a lot. And it's not the technology, it's the cognitive capacity. And as a cognitive psychologist, I say, well, when you practice remembering to read the chat and read the room at the same time, those demands get a little bit less, but they don't go away. It's just too complex. So I think if we are going to have, yeah, the true bona fide high flex courses going forward, they need to be designated. They need to be supported in a particular way. So they may not be unicorns exactly, but I kind of see that coming forward. What I feel like I've kind of settled into the more high flex light, high flex infused is, for example, if you're home and you're remote, you need to be remote today. I don't have an elaborate Google Doc with a structured discussion maybe for you, but you can follow along. You can send in a participation card. I do give a lot of credit for participation. And so we're kind of moving to that. I do think that we still have a sense of possibility. I mean, we have definitely gotten those skills and we will find new ways to use them. But even just the basics, like, hey, you can record your class meetings. And I offer that too as an option for catching up sometimes where needed. I really thought that was going to be a disaster for a lot of different reasons going in. I said, that's not going to work. And I will eat those words now. So we have a few of these tools in our toolkits that we can use in this lower key way, I think. So Kevin, you mentioned the ability of changing modalities and offering some flexibility here. And the ability for students to choose the modality that they take a course in is just one of the ways that we've seen increased flexibility. But we've also seen increased flexibility around attendance assessments, and many other aspects of teaching. How can we continue to support increased flexibility for students without overburdening faculty? I'm really hoping you all have some magic that you can help with. Yeah, so increased flexibility without the overburdening of faculty. When I reflect on this, I think we can borrow from the plus one strategy that you might be familiar with from Universal Design for Learning. Tom Tobin and his colleagues who write about this the idea being that, yeah, we're working towards perhaps a very rich environment with many different ways to demonstrate what you know, to take a test, to participate in, in a learning activity, but you don't do it all at once. And I also think, too, that I know that I've gotten, I think, pretty adept at finding those opportunities for flexibility that don't necessarily add more for me to do. And I think an example of this would be the way I give exams these days. So during the pandemic, I said, there's always going to be an option instead of sitting for a traditional test. 
So I have an option that's an essay paper with length and scope parameters and so on. But students can structure this. I suggest they often structure it as an email home to your family about what you've learned during this portion of the course. I've had a few students who have run with it as a science fiction writing exercise, which works great in psychology. So people will report home to their alien commander or home base about what they've learned about humans on planet Terra. And those are, if anything, just a change of pace for me to read. I'm reading the exams anyway. So I'm always about the efficiency, and so that's something that I've tried to capture as well. But here too, we have to remember there are risks when we offer these, and faculty who do go out on that limb and try it the first semester or two, and maybe it doesn't work perfectly, they've got to be affirmed and they've got to be protected, especially untenured folks. I feel like I want to report to my alien commander now. (laughs) (laughs) More calling Orson, more calling Orson. That's a deep cut callback. You have to be of a certain age to appreciate that. I agree with a lot of that. I don't think I disagree with any of that. But I will broaden out a little bit and maybe anchor back, Rebecca, to your, your prompt a little bit. I personally think we should lean into intentional course design in intentionally designed and created modalities for which student flexibility is the intent. Asynchronous online is probably the most flexible thing we offer outside of maybe true adaptive learning, which is, don't get me started, that's another whole tough banana to peel. I need a better metaphor. Bananas aren't that tough to peel. Tough (laughs) onion to peel. There's lots of tears. I don't know, something. (laughs) And then I think we need to reiterate to ourselves and to our faculty colleagues that there are codified effective practices in each of these course modality domains like a shameless plug at UCF, we host the Teaching Online Pedagogical Repository, Topper, an online compendium of online and blended teaching and design practices. So there's stuff that we know that are research-based, time-honored, that work well and benefit students. Things like the broad category of learner choice, which I think just echoes a little bit of what Michelle was saying. We don't have to reinvent the wheel. We lean into those things, and there's real student benefit for doing that. The disruptions we experienced in education during the pandemic when people were learning remotely affected all students, but disproportionately affected students who are first-gen, students from low-income households, and minoritized students. How does higher education need to adjust to meet the diverse needs of all of our students, some of which were not as affected by the pandemic if they were in well-resourced school districts, and others that were left behind a bit when they didn't have access to the technology or the resources? that better funded school districts had. Yeah, we could do better. Even here at the conference in which we're participating here as we record this, we saw even today student voice represented on stage. And I think we could do better with that. There's knowing who our students are. There are data that we are collecting and could collect that tell us something, but there's also just attending to students' personal stories, keeping a human face on the student experience, being grounded in our work there. But broadening further, again, I'm a big advocate of research-based and time-honored teaching practices. And in our digital teaching and learning domain, many of those have been shown to benefit minoritized and disadvantaged student subpopulations. I would do a shout out here to Tanya Justin's research review that has its long title. It's got Educational Technologies and Student Success and racial and ethnic groups of interest, all in the title, can be Googled, it's free, it's available. But she does a nice job of 
reviewing and synthesizing the extant literature and making some recommendations from that. And so there are ways in which our online and blended, in particular, design and teaching practices benefit everybody, but in particular benefit first-gen, minoritized students, and so forth. And here's a little free factoid. In a little fascinating recommendation, she says, you know, there's some evidence to suggest that reduced seat time blended courses at the lower division level particularly benefit disadvantaged students of populations. And then going into online courses at the upper division in the major kind of courses, those two things together you know, it's stunning. That's not whiz-bang, whirly-gig, shiny, right? But that's just doing the work. But as we align that, it really has benefits that evidence would bear out. I just want to start by echoing something that Kelvin mentioned, which is that if we're going to serve the students we have and the students that we will have, we have to know who they are. And there are studies of generations and qualities, but I don't think anything replaces asking the people in your classroom about themselves in a way that is safe and non-threatening, but comes from an authentic place of curiosity. So I do this with my students at the start of every semester. I ask them questions. None of them are required, but I ask them questions about things like, what kinds of technology do you have? And how many hours a week are you working? And which of this very long list of challenges do you think you might face during the semester? What kinds of things can I do to help you? Just so that I have a sense of who's in the room and what might be going on with them. So just yesterday, I was teaching my Zoom class from upstairs in my hotel room, which I was very grateful for because I'm an introvert and this conference is overwhelming. So I was happy to have an excuse to get away for three hours to teach. But we spent 20 minutes just asking, how are you? No, no, how are you? Not, I'm fine, I'm okay, but what's going on? And one of my students said, I've always struggled with depression and I thought I had it under control, but the last week has taught me that I don't. And it's only because we're in week six of a seven-week class that that student felt like he could say that and the whole class could say, me too. And those moments, I think that is so critical. And it's just the humanization that we've already talked about and meeting people where they are. I want to put in a plug for Zaretta Hammond's book about, I don't remember the full title, but it's the brain and culturally relevant responsive teaching. It's got a lot of really good buzzwords in it, but it talks about how when the brain is in a state of trauma or stress, you can't learn. And so we can talk about all of these things that we can do, but if our students are not in a place to hear it, Nothing that we do is going to make a difference. And I think if we're talking about how to teach the students we have, we have to be aware of that before we can move forward. So you've nicely connected to our next topic. (laughs) Almost like I meant to. I know. It's almost like you knew it was coming. Campuses are seeing a rise in mental health needs in their student bodies, both prior to the pandemic and it obviously continues to increase. And shifting to more inclusive practices is shifting the relationship that students are having with the faculty, just like you mentioned, being able to be more open about some of these things. In my own experience, I've seen an increase in disclosure of mental health challenges and distress and the need to refer and actively engage in suicide prevention. These are things that I didn't need to do five years ago, (laughs) or maybe I did need to do, but didn't see, but definitely see now. 
So how can faculty and institutions more effectively respond to mental health challenges facing our learning communities? And obviously, Liz, you kind of started us off on some ideas here. Michelle? Yeah, I'd like to put another book on the radar actually as well. And full disclosure, I was an editor on this book, but I really believe in it. It's coming out next year, actually. It's called Learning and Student Mental Health in the College Classroom. Lead author is Robert Eaton. And it is in this space of friendly, actionable strategies when we do have increased disclosure. I mean, I found too that Zoom itself is a sort of a disinhibiting space like many online spaces are. And going in, I should have known that. It's like on paper, I've read it. But then it became very, very real. So what do we do with that? Because the thing for faculty is, we mean this well, but our minds immediately go to, how do I fix it? Oh my gosh, do I have to kind of do amateur therapy that I'm not qualified to do? And no, that is absolutely not what we need to do next. It's a good thing to be concerned about not crossing boundaries at that same time as we are responding to what students are disclosing for us. So the strategies that I like are those that say, well, let's start by not accentuating the crises and the stresses that are there. And a few other kind of concrete things. For me, not asking for doctor's notes. Boy, when I started teaching a long time ago, I was all about the documentation and show me exactly what happened at the emergency room and that type of thing. So now I offer flexibility and many paths to catch up that much like universal design for learning are built in for everyone from day one of the course. So if there's something that prevented you from coming to class or making that deadline, okay, we can talk about it if you want, but we don't have to. And you can simply take those paths that I've already laid out for you. I think taking the time to empathize, many of us did practice those skills and we can continue to do so. When I get to talk to people who are just starting out as teachers, I say, you have this big, loud microphone, this megaphone to a student's ear. Your words land very, very powerfully. So you really need to think about those. I find that my students seem to come to me expecting very harsh treatment and very harsh reactions when they tell me about what they're going through. And so I remind myself to simply start with warmth and compassion and human empathy and a way forward. So that's something that we can do. And when all else may fail, I say, how would I want my own child in the same situation, a crisis which is hopefully temporary and passing? How would I want them to be spoken to? How would I want that email to be phrased? What kind of paths forward would I want for them? So that's how I take it. We're a little behind the schedule, so we're going to ask anyone in the audience to come up to the microphone. One of the issues we haven't quite gotten to is the issue of preventing burnout. Maybe if Liz could address that briefly while people come up. So I want to talk about burnout in a very particular way, because I think we often think of burnout as a me problem, and I think of burnout as an everyone problem. It is a system that is creating it, and so I want to tell every one of you listening that you are not the problem and you haven't done anything wrong. But in order to mitigate burnout, we have to be aware of what our boundaries are. And that often requires getting really quiet and listening to ourselves because we've been steeped in this culture that tells us that hustling and productivity is the only way you're valuable. And that is not true. But you're not going to be able to figure out what your boundaries are if you're listening to those voices. So you got to step out of that for a minute 
and figure out what really matters to you. And here's a good way to do it. Think about yourself 20 years from now. What are the things that are going to have mattered about what you're doing right now? And what are the things that you won't really care about? Choose to spend your time on the things that will matter to you 20 years from now. And all of these other kind of petty political debates in your institution, because we all have them, that's not what you're going to be remembering when you look back on your career. Focus your energy and your care on the things that you're going to care about over a career and make choices accordingly. I think that's the advice I would give. My name is Jaleesa Dallas. I'm representing the University of Phoenix. My role is as a recognized student organization manager, program manager. And so my question was, how do we effectively work with students in a way that's going to help streamline their purpose as it pertains to connecting with them in the classroom? So a lot of students have a lot of things going on. And how do we streamline that to get them to stay focused and prioritize when so much is going on and around? Thank you for the question. I mean, I think it's making sure that what we are doing, we're transparent about why it matters to them. And it's creating relevance to whatever their goals are. And of course, you can't do that if you don't know what they are. So again, you need to know your students, but designing the work for your class so that it feels intrinsically valuable, I think is the best advice I can give. Hi, I'm Allie Kerwin. I am a course operations specialist with the University of Michigan. We are an all online program, or I work for an all online master's program. It's asynchronous. We have students everywhere in all different time zones. And we have faculty that care a whole, whole lot about our students. So I'm wondering as a designer, how can I help encourage my faculty to set boundaries with their students in a way that honors their joy of teaching and interacting with their students, but is working towards preserving them and not burning them out as well. <laughs> well, I think that even subtle things like wording choice. So are there things that say over and above, do we give awards for the person who did the most? Or do we give awards for people who did the best? So I think that faculty, especially when they're new, are really looking for those cues. And so those can be powerful. What Michelle said. No, that, <laughs> what Michelle said, but just maybe to underscore and amplify that for a second. I've thought about it, doing this myself, and I just haven't. But I love the colleagues, and maybe some of you are them, who have those little statements in the bottom of your email, right? Like, if you're getting this email when you're not working, don't feel some sort of obligation to respond right now. I sent it at a time that I was working. That might not be the time that you're working. And in a collegial sort of way, we can have that same kind of a vibe, I think, in our course interactions between faculty and students. And then again, wording, I got a note just last night on a book project I'm working on from a colleague who's doing a peer review. And he said, I show my respect by being direct and blatantly honest. And so I think framing is everything. Word choice is everything. And making explicit where you're coming from without just sort of caving to the implicit pressures and cultural expectations. That's hard, but it's important. Yes. And women in the academy we do a lot of emotional labor and that comes very naturally to me. If you know anything about the Enneagram, I'm a two, like I want to fix all your problems. Okay. But the way that I do this, because students tell me everything, I think they tell me everything because they know that I will listen 
But what I have learned for myself, and this has been the difference between moving towards burnout and not, is that I am here to listen to you deeply. I am not here to fix your problems. And I will refer you to people who can help you. But if you just need to be heard, I will listen. And sometimes that does get heavy. But I also recognize that if I fix all the problems for all the students, I'm going to be exhausted. And that doesn't really serve them in the long run because they don't need someone to fix their problems. They just need someone to tell them that they're okay and that I believe in you and I care about you. And so I would say that. But deep listening is one of the greatest gifts you can give someone else. And that's just listening to understand what they're saying, not to respond. So that's what I would say. And please never send pictures from the ER. Never. (laughs) You know, students, tell them. No ER photos. We always end by asking, what's next? And we'll start with Kelvin. Crystal ball, still not working. (laughs) But here's, I guess, my read on the situation. There are more options for people to learn and work than there ever have been before. So I think that we can either meet the needs of our colleagues and our learners or someone else will when they go elsewhere. What's next for me? I want to keep doing the absolute best I can teaching my actual classes. I'm just reconnecting so much with that. And I think that's a good thing for now. And I'm eagerly looking at hopefully deeper changes in the academy. Also looking for rebuilding online presence. Twitter used to be a big part of my online life and I quit that in May. And saying, what kind of connections was this yielding with other faculty, even with students and the big ideas in my field? And maybe I can take more charge and have more agency in that going forward. I'm working on a book, so you should all buy it when it comes out. Michelle is the editor, so it's going to be really good. (laughs) Um, it's tentatively called The Present Professor, and we mentioned it in the introduction. But really, I'm just looking for ways where we can create more student-centered, student-supportive, and faculty well-being-centered places of learning. That is my passion, and I'd love to talk to any of you who are interested in that. Thank you all for coming. And on your tables, there's little packets that Rebecca designed with some tea in them. So please take them with you so she doesn't have to bring them back to Oswego. Yeah, thank you all for joining us. And thanks for those that ask questions. And thank you to all of our panelists. And we finished on time. It is exactly (laughs) what If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast service. To continue the conversation, join us on our Tea for Teaching Facebook page. You can find show notes, transcripts, and other materials on teaforteaching.com. Music by Michael Gary Brewer.